So, uh, Ryan Curry, welcome to the journey. Uh, I appreciate you being here this morning. I know we we just met uh, about a month ago yeah. and at, a, at another uh, fundraiser. And uh, let me just share a little bit about what uh, the journey is about. And essentially, the journey is. Um, just an opportunity to have individuals come on and tell their stories about how maybe they've had something that they've struggled with, something that um, some setbacks in their life, um, some uh, something that either could be uh, some type of trauma or it could be uh, through mental illness or addiction, or maybe it was just that they were trying to transform uh, transform their life and recreate themselves. Sure. And I know that uh, what, what a little bit I know about you, I know you have a story. And so, uh, yeah. but before we jump into, all that and you telling your story um why don't you share a little bit about who you are as a person but what do you do what do you do for fun what do you if you have fun what do you do oh geez uh i'm a dad so okay um you know it's, how old are your kids uh one will be 16 next month another will be 12 okay. or 11 next month and youngest is seven so okay okay yeah it's so uh, high school middle school and grade school okay soon to be middle school yeah yeah so um I love hanging out with them. Okay. Um, I'm a homebody. Okay. Um, so a lot of my <laughs> life is family oriented now. Sure. I do I do the things like play fantasy football and I go on Sundays over to a buddy's house and, and we watch football every Sunday, a, a, a lifelong friend. So okay. um, there are things like that, but. Um, I, I'm a homebody. I, I okay. like, I like being home. So, and being with it. And, and then the, the kids are what, what ages? I, you said what ages, but are boys, uh, all girl, girls, all girls. Oh, oh yeah. hello. Yeah. So. And my wife wants to have another. And, oh, okay. And, and I'm health. You know, I don't have the best health. So it's, okay. um, it's always been a debate. Like I love kids. Like I, I see younger ones and I just, you know, I gravitate toward it. I just want to, you know, pick sure. up babies and, and play all day. But, um, at what point, you know, it's my body just done. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> and okay. she's not. So yeah. <laughs> now your wife's name is Liz, right? Yes. And, yeah. and how long have you guys been together? How long have you been married? Uh, we've been married only a year and a half. Okay. I've uh, been together almost nine years. Oh, so. okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. And what does she do? What does she do for a living? Uh, she works for family business. So uh, she does billing uh, for uh, remodeling, handyman type Ox okay. Oxford remodeling. Okay. Um, and then she works for a friend that has a book reveal club. So she does that also on the side. And, okay. So yeah. it sounds like she's busy too. And puts up with me. So, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and three girls. Yes. And three girls. And, and, and she's all an the amazing things mom. that change it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's definitely the. Uh, the glue, as everybody would say, you sure. know, the example, she keeps us together. My mind goes a million places. So sure. I'm, I'm oh. traveling and doing, you know, speaking events or, or sometimes comedy or acting and I'm all over the place. And every time I text her and say, Hey, you know this, all she says, I'm proud of you. I'm happy for you. This is awesome. Like she's so supportive. It's nice. You know, whereas my mind, I'm like, Oh really? This is what you're doing now. You know, <laughs> whereas most people would, she's not like that at all. She's just extremely supportive. So nice. And how'd you guys meet? So her dad, uh, owns a local pub Oscars. <laughs> and, oh, okay. uh, so I'd go in there, um, when we're, we'll talk about my darker time <laughs> revolved around yeah, uh, the sure. bar a lot. But, um, so her dad actually introduced us, oh, um, okay. not thinking we would ever date. Okay. Um, but uh, it's all worked out okay. uh, for the better, and now everything's come full circle, and nice. um, everybody's just uh, loving life and happy family. So nice. Now, are you from the Rockford area? 
I was born and raised in Belvedere. Okay. Right. Yep. And then went to high school in Belvedere? I did. I did. And yeah. that would have been Belvedere, BHS then? Belvedere yeah, this is, you know, I'm old. It's before yeah. these schools were built. <laughs> New schools. Were yeah. <laughs> it was a nice, quiet, quaint town. Now it's like a metropolis. It's, it's a whole lot different now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> it sure is. Yeah. So uh, we'll have to talk later because Dalton is the head wrestling coach for the Belvedere Co-op. And oh, so, nice. he, so he uh, was the first, first head coach of when they brought both schools together for the co-op. No kidding. So, so I've, I've found myself back learning more about Belvedere again and, yeah. and, and spending more time in Belvedere. But So uh, now when you were in um, high school or middle school, did you do extracurriculars? <clears throat> did you, were you involved with sports or, or performing yeah. arts or anything like that? My dad was a wrestler, so he's he told me, he's like, you're going to wrestle or play football? You're going to play a contact sport. Okay. And he was adamant about it. Okay. And uh, so I'm like, all right. you know, I, I didn't want to wrestle. That was his thing. He was state champ back in 1938 or something. I'm just, <laughs> uh, and uh, so I played football in junior high. And uh, I remember I was safety. And I took a punt return. And I ran it back about 50 yards against Harlem High School. And they hit me so hard that I vowed I was never going to play that game again, and I didn't. I was okay. done. I finished the season, sure. but uh, I didn't want to play that game again. I, it hurt. Yeah. <laughs> so I was done. So I played uh, uh, golf and tennis okay. and baseball. Yeah. Okay. So I okay. played baseball throughout. So so baseball throughout and then also golf and tennis. Yeah, and they shared seasons, so it was always kind of in between. We'd sure. boycott you know, high school baseball and we go play tennis. And, oh, sure. And then I okay. played BYB and then, you know, so – yeah, okay. I loved it. Okay, so your dad was a wrestler. He was. And, and when do, when do you when do you, do you remember when he graduated? What year? I don't. I'm guessing it had to be seventy eight. Okay, so late seventies or something like that. Okay, yep. and uh, so he was a big time wrestler. You said, did you say he won state championship? Or, uh, yeah. Or, no, actually, if he was born in fifty, he's probably more like seventy two. Okay. Seventy three. Okay. But yeah, right. he was state state, state champion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I I know and and. Um, in our family, wrestling is a big thing, and uh, yeah. you know we, and none of us in our family, you know, went down, you know, did as well as that. Yeah. But but it still was it, it was just part of the culture. You know, yeah. just if you're a wrestler, it's just part of what sure. what you do. And and I know for us that in football we continued following that even after oh, yeah. we were done done you know playing or yeah. anything. But um, what'd your dad do for a living? Uh, he then he went to college and became a uh, a phone man. So he worked for GTE and CDC, and then they bought out, merged with Frontier, and Frontier turned into uh, Verizon, and it kind of all kind of bounced around. So okay. he uh, he did that for almost thirty years before oh, uh, his spine said no more. He had uh, a few back surgeries, got in a bad vehicle accident while he was working, uh, and uh, no more climbing poles and digging holes for him. He was just he was done. So he uh, he retired uh, after thirty years in, and uh, okay. and he's what we say failed at retirement because he's up every morning he's he's still at steam plant restaurant eating breakfast with the phone company guys sure. and then he's cleaning the church and mowing uh four different lawns and mm-hmm. take care of my grandma and you know he's busier than you know i am and you know i try to stay full-time as much as possible so sure i just had the conversation with someone yesterday about the the, the concept of retirement and <laughs> uh, and 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 what he, if you don't plan for it you know oh, a couple yeah. different not not so necessarily good things happen oh you, no you no. know you either completely go down and, and it consumes you or or you just get busier than you were before but you don't even know what you're busy doing <laughs> you have to transition purposes is, is what i always preach when i when i speak is purposes 
when I lost purpose is when I lost myself mm-hmm. and I just went down that dark path. If you have a purpose and you have a goal and an agenda and a schedule, then life is very manageable True. and you can be happy. But yeah. when you lose that purpose, a lot of people's purpose is that work life, yeah. you know, that nine to five or eight to four job. And when that stops, you know, you become this, this person that feels like they're not giving back, especially, you know, these, you know, this typical, they call them baby boomers or boomers. And <laughs> I hate that term, but, um, they were raised a lot differently. Whereas they started working at 13 years mm-hmm. old and, and you didn't, you know what I mean? And yeah. they're just very strong willed people, very, mm-hmm. very work, uh, work ethic, work oriented, yeah. work oriented, uh, yeah. you know, generation, which is awesome because I got to learn from that. So, right. Um, yeah, I'm very much believe with, with what you just said about this idea of needing to know what your why is, what that, what your purpose is. Yeah. Um, and, and I just did a talk just recently about, um, and, and the main point was, is that if you know what your why is, you can endure almost anyhow. Yeah. And, um, and that was a quote, um, I think, I believe it was, uh, Victor Frankel that, uh, that, that quote that originally came up with that phrase, um, so, so I know, so we can get into your story because, yeah. you know, part of what, how I got to know you a little bit was that you were a veteran and, and you had mentioned you were in the Marine Corps. Yeah. And so, so, so how did, when did that happen and why the Marine Corps and, and yeah, tell us a little bit about that. I had grandparents that were all in, in every branch. So Marine Corps, Navy and Army. Um, and then an uncle was in Air Force. But I met this, my best friend, Jim Gosnell. Um, we, uh, he's another Belvedere guy. We met junior high and he was just like me. We were what you'd call ADD now. You know what I mean? We, we were just all over the place. You know, they'd medicate us like crazy right now. And, and, but then we just, you know, you embraced it. You had fun. We were adventurous. We were out doing obstacle courses and, and he, uh, decided Marine Corps and he's like, dude, let's, let's join together. So from about sophomore year on, all we did was, is want to do that. And that never changed throughout our entire high school career. I mean, we just, we knew we want to join the Marine Corps. So we, uh, we, on my 17th birthday, I raised my right hand, uh, up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and, uh, at the MEP station up there, um, cause you had to be 17 and, uh, my parents signed for me and, uh, we both left for uh boot camp, uh, July 98. Okay. All right. And so, um, so you graduated, graduated in May of 98, right? Yeah. And then in, in July you were at boot camp. Yeah. And, and, and part of the picking the Marine Corps was part of it was, I'm assuming part of it was just because your, your buddy wanted to, you know, that was, was there a particular, any other reasons other than that? Why uh, that branch other than, than the other branch? Sure. It's got the stereotype of being the toughest, okay. you know, it's the 13 week boot camp. It's a longer boot camp. It's okay. uh, it's a very strenuous boot camp. Um, and if I do something, I've always wanted to go all in. You know, I always wanted to kind of take the, the toughest path. I've, I've, it's always been in my nature, um, mm-hmm. just to say I accomplished it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just and, – and, and there's – every video you see in the Marine Corps, you know, they're they're coming out of the water and they've mm-hmm. got cami paint on and, you know, they've got these crazy-looking rifles. And, mm-hmm. you know, it just, just it fascinated me. And sure. I, was, it, I was extremely interested in, in doing it and um, – 
and he shared that interest. So okay. uh, we did what you call the buddy program, okay. which is really bad because he looked a little bit like me. So you get in there and you get a drill instructor that knows two guys came in the buddy program. I mean, they thrashed us nonstop. We got <laughs> strong real quick. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, tell me, tell us a little bit about that experience of, of, of the early, early part of that. And then, <clears throat> and then, um, so 98. Okay. So that would have been pre nine 11. So then yeah. things were, things were, <clears throat> things shifted. They were already building, um, before yeah. that, but then they dramatically shifted in the early 2000s. So tell us what it was like, uh, pre nine 11 and then post nine 11. Sure. Uh, so when I joined in, I went in as uh, amphibious assault. I drove the big floating tanks. Um, okay. Was my job. My, one of my deals my parents had was you're not going infantry. They thought for some reason they thought that was that's where the you know the guys with rocks <laughs> and their brains went. You know, and uh, they wanted me to do something that I could use when I got out. Mm-hmm. Not sure what I would use driving amphibious tanks around <laughs> unless I'm driving ducks up at the Dells. Oh, but yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, guys don't went infantry. Um, and I get to this unit, I do my schooling, um, and, uh, Gassanel calls me one day. We're both in Camp Lejeune now. We're over on the East coast. And, uh, so we're going to stay together this whole time. You know, mm-hmm. he's a mile down the road and he's like, Hey, I just took the indoc for the special forces. He's like, you got to do it. Normally, if you're not infantry, you don't even get that chance or, or you wouldn't be expected to take that chance, but, or that opportunity to take the indoc. Uh, so I asked my platoon sergeant, he laughed at me. You know, no. Uh, so I waited another week, and I and I approached him again. And it's like this is something I really want to do, you know. And uh, he said he'd ask around, and it, it kind of died off again. And then I just started really working at it. So while everybody else is kind of out partying, like I threw a ruck on my back, you know, put fifty pounds in it, and I ran nonstop, and I would train and train and and when they're driving out after work past the barracks and they see me out there training nonstop, they knew I was really serious about it. Mm -hmm. So, um, they signed my orders to go take the indoc and, uh, out of 33 of us, only three of us passed the indoc, um, that I was in. So I get orders to come back. I come back to my unit and I'm like, Hey, you know, I made it They're They're offering me to come go into uh, the platoon, which is the indoctrination platoon. So you go through three months rip, and then you go up to Amphibious Reconnaissance School ARS. Uh, they denied my orders. They weren't going to let me go. Your your home platoon. Yeah. yeah okay. They're like, oh, that's great that you passed, and we're happy for you, but we kind of need numbers here, and we're about to go on a float out to uh, a Mediterranean float out to the Med. And uh, I was I was pissed. I was I was mad. You know, I was like, I just I've been training this. This is what I wanted to do. My you know, this was in my mind. My buddy's there. Like this is what's going to happen. So I requested mass. Uh, and, and requesting that, mass means uh, you do the paperwork to jump chains of command, uh-huh. and you get to someone that really can make that decision um, without by by bypassing, you know, this the guy who's going to say, right? <laughs> yeah, they were really happy. The funny part is, is I had to go on, two months before that. I went on a meritorious board, and my gunny's like, when you walk in in front of this board, and what you do is you walk into this room, and uh, it's like a panel of, of of higher ups, you know, officers and enlisted that are uh, way above my pay grade. And, uh, you, re- you report to them. He's like, you walk in there and you slam the door. That's an attention gainer. Their heads will raise up and then they'll know you're in there. <clears throat> well, I did this and two of his pictures fell off the wall and broke and he kicked me out of the office. Didn't even get to answer a question. Didn't get promoted. Uh, and this is the guy now I'm going to go in front of, uh, to ask <laughs> if I can, you know, did he mile out and, uh, go to the Sadak. So I went in there and, uh, <clears throat> he said, no, 
So I went back to my unit and requested mass above his head mm-hmm. to the uh, to the division commander. And about a week later, I got called back up into that sergeant major's office, and he told me to basically pack my stuff and, and go. He signed mm-hmm. my orders. So okay. uh, so I checked in with Gosnell. Uh, the cool thing about recon, um, which is our version, the uh, Marine Corps' version of Special Forces, we got uh, recon, force recon at that time. Now it's MARSOC and Raider Battalion. Um, but everybody lives to train. I mean, they're mm-hmm. there by choice. So there's a lot of people that join the military and they're, they're bummed out that they're there. You know, they mm-hmm. regret, you know, so they just kind of go through their four years. Well, when you go into recon, uh, everybody just lived to train. I mm-hmm. mean, you go through your pipeline where you're going to airborne school and combatant dive school. Uh, the Marine Corps uh, recon is the only uh, rarity where you can go to combatant dive school um, and seer school and all these cool, you know, things that you see in the posters, you know, sure, now sure. I was living those poster dreams, you know, sure. and, uh, and then it turns out that Gosnell is in my team. Oh, okay. So this guy, <clears throat> I get, I get roomed up with, uh, a guy named Nick Walsh, Saul Carrillo and Jim Gosnell. Okay. And, uh, and we roomed throughout and we we're, that was our, that was our team, our the, group. The four of you guys. The four of us. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, we spent majority of our time together okay. and then even, when they'd go to different platoons and stuff like that we we all just were together mm-hmm. you know, no matter what and uh we got to go to go you know see the world it was it was awesome but it was everybody it was intense and then uh and then september 11th happened we were all uh we're you know training like any other day mm-hmm. um and uh i was down in the s4 office and there's uh you know big box tvs because this is you know so long ago uh the news comes on and, and we're just watching and, and then we knew life was about to change because yeah. um, we weren't just an average unit. We were, you know, people that aren't, I'll explain a little bit. Jabba reconnaissance is to jump in in the middle of the night or insert into a hostile area um, undetected and take as much intel without being detected and then reporting that back so that units can come in. Okay. So our job is to sneak in, blend among the people, I mean, that's not always, sometimes it's to take out a target, um, as well. Um, or, or, uh, to take high value targets back with us or capture mm-hmm. targets. So, um, recon is, is, and we're amphibious reconnaissance. So, um, we insert by water most of the time and gotcha. And yeah, so it's, okay. so it's a really exciting job. Sure. It's a fun job. Sure. Uh, it's very extreme and I, and I loved it. Um, but so nine eleven happens, we get put on lockdown um nobody's allowed to leave the base um things changed uh drastically from then to get on base it'd take you an hour because they had to check everybody's vehicles and um where you could just normally drive on base they saw that sticker in the window they waved you through mm-hmm. uh security lockdown crazy sure uh, about and uh and yeah it changed uh changed drastically on base life on base was a lot different um but even then i didn't deploy yet <coughs> i uh um, I decided to wait out a couple of years and nothing happened. My unit didn't go. A couple of the other units went because it's, it's not just one unit. There's, that's a battalion. So there's many companies in there mm-hmm. and my company wasn't, wasn't going to deploy and I had a girlfriend back home. I'm like, I'm just getting out. I'm done. I'm not mm-hmm. going to play the game anymore. So, uh, guys, <clears throat> got out too, since we joined together. So we got out, uh, Walsh and Carrillo stayed in and, um, we lived in Gosnell's mom's basement. <laughs> we had our girlfriends, you know, and, and life was uh, mundane, uh, to say the least. And uh, 
and I uh, joined. Uh, so I, I got bored with life and joined uh, a unit up in Madison with Brandon Ramey, who's a local Belvedere guy, and uh, whose mom was a, a close family friend of ours too. So I'd known Ramey for years, um, and him and I would drive up there every every uh, month and and train. And uh, then that unit was supposed to deploy. So I'm like, all right, I'll deploy with them. And then they didn't. Then they're supposed to deploy again, and then they didn't. So I'm like, again, we're going to play this game. So I got out again. And then they did deploy, and Raimi got killed. So after Raimi died, I had this kind of weird vengeance. You know, I was mm -hmm. I was irritated with the world. And I'm saying maybe three months after, maybe longer, six months after, I got a phone call. It's like, hey, we're getting the, the band back together. Do you want to go do a deployment in Fallujah? The four of you guys. <clears throat> well, there would be Ooh. in different places. It would be Gaza. It would be is already over and hit at this time, a uh, place in Iraq. So we're going to be basically together, okay. but in different with different units. So, okay. Okay. Um, but back in, in Iraq. Gotcha. So, and um, so, I was, uh, yeah, I'm going to go. So. Uh, so just to make sure that I understand, yeah, because it, when you say you're out, that means you, you're not in the Marine Corps anymore or you're not, how, how, I don't guess I'm not really understanding. I'm what, in this weird IR is what they call it, inactive reserves where you have about four years that you're obligated. So in the Marine Corps, when you join active duty, you do four years active, four years inactive reserves. Uh, um, so I, when I went to Madison, I just reenlisted into a reserve unit, okay. did a year contract, and then I got out. Oh, I see. And then I get a call from a buddy, and he's like, hey, do you want to go to Fallujah? Gotcha. So I uh, I said, yeah. Okay. You know, and uh, so and over there, I got hired to do uh, to lead a scout team. Uh, and my job in there was to take two vehicles ahead of a convoy security, or ahead of a convoy, a main body convoy, and look for IEDs and any threat. So if it's an ambush threat, my job is to eliminate that threat before the convoy gets there, halt, halt the convoy, eliminate the threat, and then push through. My job was basically provide security for the convoy. Um, and a lot of times you find IEDs by hitting them. They hide them really well. You know, sometimes they'll be in a tire. Well, my job is to drive up next to that tire and look inside that tire. Because if I pass that tire and it blows up the convoy, I just failed at my job. Mm. So my job was not a fun job mm -hmm. i mean it was it was basically looking in every hole in the road um and half the time you look down in it that's when they go off um so i got hit a lot um and within uh i want to say the seven months i was there but within the last month i had seven concussions just from blast alone uh six from ieds and then one from a uh a uh, rpg that hit my door that didn't go off thank god <clears throat> so I got beat up pretty good over there. And what I didn't know is the more I was taking these concussions, the slower my mind was getting my reaction where it was noticeable to others. I thought I was okay. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd gotten hit really hard on my birthday, August 22nd. I'll never forget it. I begged to go back out on a mission. I was getting stir crazy because I'd gotten blown up the, uh, two days before that. And they made me stay back in the rear just to kind of gather my thoughts. And, uh, we're just going to run down to Biop, and I had like we call it the Walmart because they had this store down there that you could go buy a bunch of stuff. And I was like, you know, I want to buy some stuff, you know, take home with me. We're leaving in a month, so I mean, it's it's easy street now, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, we take this back route behind Abu Ghraib. Everybody talks about Abu G, the prison over there. 
And, uh, and as we're sitting back there, uh, I had a seven ton actually go in front of me, which is a big armored vehicle just because it's a new route and it can take a lot more blast than I could in this little Humvee. So I had him lead the route. I'd go behind him and he notices something up above and halts the convoy. So it's that vehicle and my vehicle. And then the main body convoy is 2000 meters behind me. They stayed way back. And then we had two ghost vehicles that went behind them. And as I look to the right, I see this RBG coming right at me and there's nothing that I'm going to do. I'm going to brace for, you know, impact. Um, and the way the blasting cap must've hit my door because an RPG is what I was told is has to hit pretty direct and it hit at an angle cause it was up top, came down and hit where it glided and then ignite. And then it actually detonated underneath my door. Mm. So it caused uh, concussion and it knocked me out, but it should have killed me and mm-hmm. all of us really. True. <clears throat> so we got lucky. So we rig for tow. We get back. I, I have to sit now. I think it's like eight days they make me. They make, it was well, August 31st before I got to go back out. So two conductions in two days. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, they were very close. Yeah. Um. So then uh, I take my, my little leave, you know, uh, my, my time off. And uh, August 31st, uh, 30th or 31st, I forget now. But um, we have a, a, a short mission. We're going to drive from. Uh, our base in Fallujah through the city of Fallujah in the middle of the night up to El Takedam, this TQ, this air base. Done it a hundred times. And uh, we're driving through there, and I see it's after curfew, and I see these headlights coming out of this uh, this alleyway. And I'm like, you know, it's after curfew, and I can see shadows running in front of the headlights, so I'm like, something's not right. So I halt our vehicle. I tell my driver, stop, you know, we're going to check this out. And as I'm getting out, it goes off. We're parked on a triple stack of 155. So uh, an artillery shell in 155 has a kill radius outside of a vehicle of 105 meters. Now we're parked on top of three of them under our engine block, and they ignite as I'm stepping out of the vehicle. Um, so all I feel is warmth. I feel uh, totally disoriented. Uh, I come to in panic. I'm laying on the road. Um, I remember just soot, not being able to breathe because all the dust from the blast. Um, I'm wiping what I thought was sweat out of my eyes, my ears. You know, I feel like I'm sweating all over. Um, that I'd later find out that I'm bleeding out of every hole in my face. Um, and then I'm peppered full of shrapnel on my legs and my side. But I come to and I'm walking down the road. Like, I think I'm back home. Like, I have no idea what's going on. I'm totally confused. And I wake up to... Uh, I can hear my, my captain screaming in my ear, you know, Curry, you know, what's going on? And that's what I come back to. And, you know, it's a one, 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 you know, everything's just slow motion mm-hmm. and just this, my head's pounding. Um, but my adrenaline's going so much that I run back to my vehicle and now we get in a 45 minute firefight, which is great for us because nine times out of 10, when the enemy blows you up, they run, you never get to engage the enemy. Uh, so it's really frustrating. So we get, we rig up uh, a little V formation. We take cover and then we uh, we return fire on a building uh, to our right where the gentlemen were um, first seen. And then we call QRF, quick react force. They insert in the v- the building and they start clearing floors. Uh, and we do uh, a rig for tow and they take my vehicle up to TQ and get us to the hot. They medevac me to the hospital. Uh, four of us. <coughs> Excuse me. 
once I get there, uh, I'll never forget an, an air force doctor is standing there and tells me to take off all my clothes. I walked in on my own. Uh, I jokingly say, will you marry me? Uh, <laughs> we, you know, we have this, this, you know, I'm, I'm okay. You know, I'm, I'm not hurting that bad. Yeah. Um, and then I, everything starts slowing down. My adrenaline starts slowing down. Uh, I slip into shock. Um, I've lost a lot of blood. Um, and the pain starts coming in and then uh, I realized, you know, maybe my injuries are a little bit worse than mm-hmm. I had at first thought, thought you know. Sure. Mm-hmm. So uh, they medevac me into a, a base in Balad, Baghdad. Uh, they work on me there, uh, keep me basically in a coma for about a week because of the swelling on my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, medevac me to Germany, then out to Maryland. And I spent seven months in the hospital out in Bethesda, Maryland. Okay. So uh, basically rehabbing my brain. Okay. Um, my functions from my brain to my hands where I couldn't tie my shoes, okay. all these signals that I'm trying to tell my body to do and my hands to do, they weren't working. Okay. Um, and since then, basically, uh, all I have is, is memory issues that, okay. uh, as, as far as brain, um, mm-hmm. and anything comes with a traumatic brain injury. Sure. Um, the impulse, the, all that fun stuff. But, uh, so after I get out and get a, I get an apartment by myself and I'm like, you know, what? I'm good to go. I don't, I don't need anybody. I'm, I'm good. I get this apartment. I'm thinking I'm out of the military now. And, uh, I get a call like two months after I had this apartment and they're like, Curry, where are you? And I'm like, first of all, who is this? Uh, this is staff sergeant from Joliet. He's like, you're still in the Marine Corps. I'm like, what do you mean I'm in the Marine Corps? I, they'd never discharged me. So I had to spend another seven months on medical hold out in Joliet that was transitioning into the special forces. So what I did is I went out to Joliet and, uh, helped transition those guys, uh, to go to ARS and lived in a Ramada out there. And, uh, until they finally discharged me. <laughs> Meanwhile, um, so I, I mean, I skipped a big part while we're there, uh, <clears throat> in um, Joliet or out East, no, out East, out East. Um, Walsh gets shot by a sniper. Mm-hmm. So our team of four that we talk to not, you know, nonstop is, uh, he gets shot in the neck by a sniper and killed, mm-hmm. um, which we're able, Gosnell and I are able to go to the, basically fly home, uh, and go to the funeral. He had a wife and two, two little boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't deal with any of that. Mm-hmm. I just kind of, uh, I hurt at the time but just kind of tucked it away. didn't hand deal with it. You know, I still had Gosnell and Carrillo, uh, who we talked every day, you mm-hmm. know, um, and, and life was okay. Um, I'd help them out as much as possible, but I didn't let it affect me sure. or didn't think it did. Uh, so, uh, we go back to living in Gosnell's basement. We're back, back to square one. We're, uh, you know, living in the bars and drinking and just being, you know, reckless, getting in fights. Um, what I thought I was okay with, I wasn't going to any of my appointments for the VA. Um, I felt my brain injury was completely manageable. Uh, I, I destroyed relationships. I made a complete fool of myself. Um, the people that I cared about, uh, I took advantage of, I guess, in a way, um, or didn't really care. I wouldn't say take advantage of, but I didn't care or, or I was extreme. Like I, if I had a girlfriend as, is I loved so extreme that, you know what I mean? I was jealous nonstop and mm-hmm. just controlling, uh, not the person I was prior and, and just not a good person mm-hmm. to who I wanted to be. Um, I know that 
at that point in life, something had to change. Either I was, you know, going to die a miserable drunk or something, something drastically had to change, but I had no out. I had no, you know, my, my, I'd, I'd gone through a divorce while I was out uh, the first time. Um, I didn't see much of my daughter. Okay. Um, I wasn't a good dad. Um, it wasn't that I would uh, subject her to anything. I just wasn't there enough. Wasn't present. Uh, I'd, yeah. I'd allow her mom to say, hey, you can have her for two hours instead of pushing for four uh-huh. or six. Uh, I was okay with that. Okay. Uh, and I shouldn't have been. You so know. you weren't fighting to be with her? I was not, yeah. no. And, and back then, that was before... Oh, I mean, if I'm if I'm following in the story, that's that was before a lot of the traumatic head injuries. Yes. And so, why do you think at that time? Why do you think you were uh, emotionally unavailable then? It just, I don't know. It, it like it switched. I, it's like a, a a chemical change in my body where I just shut off. Okay. It just wasn't there. It wasn't that I wanted to. It's like uh, people say they go to a funeral, they have to force themselves to cry or yeah. feel emotion. Yeah. I felt guilty for not feeling emotion. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, and I still struggle with that today. Right. Right. Um, or I'm extreme and too much emotion, mm-hmm. uh, like with the controlling in a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it just, I just wasn't a good person. Now, do you, was that, was that, did you start noticing those extremes, right, of no emotion and then the other, other end of extreme emotion? Did you, w- w- was that always there or was that after you got out the first time or after the, the head injuries or when did, when did you notice the severity of that? So I was an emotional kid. Okay. Um, I had a tough, a t- a t- my dad raised me as, uh, the best he could. Um, my mom and him divorced and she, uh, I lived with my dad full time. Mm. Uh, my mom dated some abusive guys. Uh, I, I just went through a lot. Okay. And so that I'd kept into and I was emotional. I think I acted out because of that. Um, so coming into the military probably wasn't, you know, without helping my own mind prior, sure. probably didn't help. Sure. Um, but I noticed that I didn't care mm-hmm. when it came out. So it didn't matter if whether I noticed, I can't tell you if I noticed the, uh, the separation from my mind, um, emotionally at a certain time. I just knew that if I did, I made an excuse for it. Sure. You know, it's, and, and that's the thing veterans do that drive me crazy. We all have an excuse to act a certain way. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you can't, you don't take responsibility for your, for those right. actions. Yeah. And that's something I'm extremely, accountability is huge on, on me, for me. Um, and I'm still not perfect. I still make mistakes all the time uh, in that regard. But um, I just knew that the person I was was, I, I would have kicked my own butt if, you know, this, this self of me would have. And it sure. just wasn't a good role model to my daughter. It wasn't, it just sure. wasn't who I wanted to be. And now I'm representing the military. They just gave me this purple heart, you know, they're praising me. And then I'm out at the bar acting like a fool. And, uh, that's how I'm representing the military now. And mm-hmm. I just, I knew that just wasn't good, um, or who I wanted to be. Right. So God's now gets married. Um, and I meet Liz at, you know, I'm at the bar and, uh, and I dated many people at the bar. So her dad, when I first started dating Liz, he was not happy. Like he, we didn't talk for five years. I mean, he was, mm-hmm. and I see why, like I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
didn't trust that you no, and yeah. he had no reason to sure sure he had yeah. no reason to I'd, I'd given him no reason to trust that i would make good decisions with his daughter and right. she at the time had a two-year-old whose father uh accidentally overdosed on opioids so okay. uh she gave me, I met her and, uh, she basically gave me the ultimatum, like either you're going to not live this life anymore and you can be in our life with my daughter and I'll let you, or you can keep acting like a jerk and, and making a name for yourself. That's, that's deserving, you know, mm-hmm. all the judgment in the world. Sure. Uh, and I, and I chose them mm-hmm. uh, and they chose me. Mm-hmm. So I felt I felt happy. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And my life changed from that. She gave me that ultimatum and that's what changed everything. So, so let's go, let's, I mean, there's obviously there's a lot of stuff up until that were going on oh, up yeah. until uh, you and Liz got to that point in your relationship where she says, wait a second, if, if this is going to be long term, things yeah. are going to have to be different here. Right. Yeah. And, um, and, but I want to, I want to talk about that part of, when when Liz draws a line, right sure. now, I'm, I'm guessing this, right? Your your dad was a wrestler, so you know to to be a state champion, it doesn't come just because someone's talented or just you know. There's a lot of discipline oh, yeah. that comes with it too. So I'm assuming your dad had you know there was some discipline and there was some accountability. Oh yeah, part of it, and and obviously that was a big thing that you benefited from being in the Marine Corps and then specifically in Recon uh, yeah. in, in that element. And you thrived in that. I mean, you, you volunteered to go where everyone wanted to train and they lived to train. Right. Yeah. So there was, there was huge benefits in those times when you said you got out, when you were on an active reserve, if I followed you, yeah. was that the restlessness caused you to want to go back in. And I've talked to other veterans when they didn't after 9-11, when they, I know this is going to sound weird when I say it, but maybe maybe it'll make <laughs> sense, but correct me if I'm wrong. When they didn't get to go and they got left behind because of circumstances, it just infuriated them internally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and so then it became this even bigger intensity and ambition to want to go. Yeah. Um, because um, guilt, shame, fear, or being left out. I mean, sure. this, this is just some of the things that veterans have shared with me when, when that, when that happened, oh, yeah. um, or if they got injured and they couldn't go back. Yeah. Um, there's a whole aspect of that. So, so if there's any, any of that, f- feel free to comment. Yeah. I compare it to like that running back who is just won the Heisman and then gets in the NFL and breaks his leg. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt like I had a lot left to go um, and i wanted that to be my life sure. i wanted to um stay in i didn't want to get out i loved it uh when you get there you know you get to grow your hair longer you know you you, you your missions change and and everybody's just eager uh in that unit and it was just an awesome place to be and i had my best friends mm-hmm. you know now walsh is gone um but i still had you know gosnell and uh carrillo and then we talked every single day. Mm-hmm. Carrillo mostly. He, he's <clears throat> Carrillo. Uh, he just he was that guy that drank nonstop. But if he was tumultuous with other people, he was very. Every time we talked, we had a great conversation. Mm-hmm. I loved every bit of it. I tell my wife like, "Hey, Carrillo's calling. How's he doing? Is he is he on the wagon? You know what's going on?" Mm-hmm. Because he fluctuated, and I just I enjoyed it. And Gosnell, at the same time, you know. 
he was going through the same dark path I was, mm-hmm. uh, but he was taking his prescribed medicine and drinking and, and just making poor choices. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had a daughter, uh, who's, you know, he's managing, you know, he married a school teacher. Um, but we fed off, he, he and I, I had to separate myself a little bit because when I got dark, he got dark mm-hmm. and yeah, it's, it's and, and I have veterans all the time tell me like, well, I didn't do what you did. And that's, if you want to drive me crazy, that's one thing to do because nobody's service is any different, whether you went in 400 missions or you were uh, in Camp Lejeune as an admin clerk, everybody's supporting the same mission. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what kind of trinkets you have on your chest uh, or ribbons or anything else like that. That drives me crazy. Like mm-hmm. I could care less. Sure. And uh, Andy Rooney from 60 Minutes once told me that uh, the Purple Heart Medal was the I Didn't Duck Fast Enough award. And uh, <laughs> I laughed at that. Uh, and he's right. I mean, it's it's I mean, it's mean, honorable, but I mean, it's you got hurt. That's why you got the medal. It's not mm-hmm. a valor, uh, a medal or something that's crazy like that. Um, but we we had our team. So when, when I when I met Liz, I was in a different spot. Um, and and I'd already now uh, I think a lot of people that are users as well, they start once they clean up uh, and they sober up. And this is what I compare it to. Um, they start realizing the damage that they've done in the past. Well, then talk about a flood of emotion and and your mind playing games, because now you know that all that hurt that you've caused and now you're taking responsibility for that. Now you have to sort that out and you really need to be in a good place to be able to start digging out of that hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, people think that you can sober up and then you're good to go. Well, no, it's not that easy. Like there's it just begins. Yeah. It's just the start. And people look at that as a mountain that's really tough and that's an excuse. Well, I made those excuses as well. I was hurt. Uh, one of my, my friends died. two of my friends have died. Um, but I was starting to get in a better place. You know, I knew that uh, where I needed to be uh, and I had this, little two-year-old i was getting to see ava more my uh my now going to be 16 year old daughter um things were getting better um and uh and one day we're sitting at the store and i get a phone call and uh they called me and, and gosnell had gotten murdered so um that was a huge hit he was uh met a guy in ptsd clinic another marine um out in north chicago and uh he um, went out to Schaumburg and met them and they were drinking and, and doing other things. And, uh, they were messing with knives, uh, as we kind of do always like showing each other different tactical moves, you know, uh, doing stupid things. And, uh, it gone too far and, uh, they stabbed him 21 times and, uh, and murdered him. And the guy got away with self-defense because, uh, Gosnell had a knife as well and they were playing or, or messing around. So. Not a scratch on the guy's body, but you know that's how Cook County operates. So, mm-hmm. um, but I noticed at that point in my life that I was in a different, a different place to receive that news. That was my lifelong best friend. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the guy I joined the military with, went mm-hmm. in the recon with. I lived with my whole life. Uh, it was a tough hit, um, but how I how I received that with the support system I had was night and day compared to when Walsh died or Ramey died. Um, and I didn't have the opportunity or ability to use that as an excuse. I'm a dad. Like Mm -hmm. you don't, 
you don't get to set your life in front of everybody else's as a dad. You know, I've always put my wife and kids in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I did. I didn't don't think I dealt with his death. And I still don't think I've really dealt with his death still. Mm-hmm. But you also had your relationship with Liz, not only hands down, she may be different, but mm-hmm. you also chose to be different in that relationship, which was the difference. Yeah. Because it wasn't like there wasn't, you had a daughter before yeah. and you may have had good girls in the past, but if you're not open, you're not available. It doesn't matter how. That's a loose term too. Cause <laughs> I'm still really not that open. <laughs> as our other, the, the counselor at the vet center is, is, is communication. It's tough for, to, for me to be vulnerable. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's hard for me to open up to her and, and give, you know, my, myself to anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that aspect, I just, I've never been, I, I mean, it was raised by a dad, you know, very, like you said, very disciplined, very strong willed, but still told me he loved me every time I left the house, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and it's, you're right. I did. I chose to get the help. I chose to keep my appointments. I took accountability. Um, but I just had a great, someone there, to really help me and that's what I needed I think you know I needed um I needed that counterpart mm-hmm. um to hold me accountable for things that I did um she, yeah she drives me crazy a lot of times but it's it's this relationships you sure, know it's sure. and neither of us are perfect but um but no it's it's that support system and and uh and I still had Carrillo so I talked to Saul every day or every other day and and uh Life was all right, you know. Mm-hmm. Life was life was good for me, um, but Carrillo was struggling still. He, he was drinking a lot, um, but every time he had his daughter, he has a daughter named Aubrey as well, same as my daughter, and uh, he would be sober. So this guy would drink nonstop. But if he had his daughter for four hours or overnight, he wouldn't drink at all. I'm talking alcohol dependent. He'd stay sober. He didn't matter what he went through. He would stay sober for her. He didn't put his daughter in front of it, or he didn't put alcohol in front of his daughter. His ex-wife called me and said, he'd been divorced, said, I met a guy, um, we're moving about 12 hours south, and I'm taking Aubrey with me. Mm. And I uh, I said, you're telling me this because you want me to tell Sowell this or what? You know. And uh, she's like, I want you to call him after I tell him and, and talk to him about it. And uh, he'd already been a bottle in at that point. Uh, he didn't take it take it very well at all. And he, for the next probably month, he drank nonstop. Mm. And uh, she called me one day and said, you have to call Sowell. I said, why? She's like, because I'm going to send Aubrey up there the whole summer. If I can call him and he's sober, I'll put her on a plane. He can have her the entire summer. And he would have loved that. So I called him and I told him, like, so your wife's going to call you, your ex-wife. If you're sober, she, you're going to have your daughter all all summer. You know, and, and I know he'd be sober all summer. So this was the saving grace. A win-win. And uh, she called, and he wasn't. She didn't get on the plane, and he died two days later. He drank himself just to the point where his body couldn't take it anymore. And that one hit me harder than anything. Like, it just destroyed me. Mm-hmm. Even though he lived so far away, like, I valued every conversation I had. This was the last guy that knows all of our intimate stories of missions and fun stuff. And just, it was the last piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Now they're all gone. Mm-hmm. Now who do I get to talk to about that stuff? Mm-hmm. And it just, it was... A huge just kick to the gut and and it was it was odd because Gosnell who I'd lived my entire life with you know I'd gotten over that quicker you know or dealt with it quicker than I did with Saul 
And, uh, but it, I just didn't understand it. And, and, and what we don't with addiction is if you're not addicted, you're not going to understand it. Right. Just like when I talk to somebody about, uh, being engaged in enemy fire, if you haven't been in that situation, you can understand and be copacetic as to the situation. But if you haven't been through it, you cannot relate with no. that right. exact feeling. Well, I couldn't relate with his feeling because I've never been dependent upon alcohol. No. And uh, it was frustrating. It just it killed me knowing that. And each of them had children, you know. So as a dad, there's nothing more important to me than my children. Mm-hmm. And I see that they've maybe put other things in front of their um, – and it just didn't settle well with me. I was mm-hmm. mad about mm-hmm. it. Um, and uh, I don't know. I just, it kicked my butt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after that, I uh, I got medically retired. My retirement went through during all of this. Um, There's more damage on my brain than they had thought. So uh, they, they put me at individually unemployable, uh, meaning I can't be employed by anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two uh, fractured knee patellas are in pieces right now. I walk with forearm crutches about half the year. I was. I've been. I've been off them for about a year and a half. I'm mm. not sure uh, what's going on, but normally when my I have a spine disease, uh, arthritis through the top of my feet up to my shoulders. You know, it's it's all through my body just from jumping out of planes and and just putting my body through hell and then injuries and uh, and I said with all this time on my hands, like what can I? What is my purpose? You mm-hmm. know, I know my purpose is a dad, uh, sure, and a husband, and I love that purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to have a purpose outside of that. You right. have to have your own purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and I decided I wanted to rebuild relationships, especially in this town that I loved, uh, and all these people. And even some people will never talk to me again. And Mm -hmm. I understand that. But at least I know that I'm doing good. Mm -hmm. So I vowed just to give back. And that's all I do now is is try as much as possible um, to give back uh, to the community and help the community in any way and help people that need help. Um, And then maybe one day these people that uh, hate me uh, or or dislike me or are so mad mad with me or don't even care anymore uh, can, can find some kind of forgiveness, you know, in their mind being like, you know, maybe he's not, you know, total scumbag or and uh and maybe just kind of realize that people change and so so when you talk about wanting to give back and wanting to help and finding purpose and wanting to help is there i mean and and i know that you know uh, similar to myself you know there's going to be very seldom you know is there going to be someone that i'm gonna you know if i can help them i'm gonna try to help them sure. right and then obviously there's even certain individuals that i find you know that are are certain people from my past even more so i have i'll have a tendency um to do what i can if i can real um, yeah. with, with that but is there a particular um group of uh, segment of the population that you're that you're even more so trying to make a difference trying to um shine some light into I mean, I hold veterans close to my heart. Sure. Uh, so that transition from this purpose of the military and people put, putting you on this pedestal mm-hmm. um, for the greater good, you know, whether you did any, you know what I mean? No matter how, uh, what uh, avenue you served, the transition back to civilian life is tough because now you feel like you blend into civilian life. Mm-hmm. That's a very difficult thing to transition back into. You go through this extreme life back to a very subtle mundane life mm-hmm. and expected just to be all right with it. Well, so I, 
I do tend to, uh, when I speak, uh, I speak a lot to a lot of veterans, but my story relates to anybody that's gone through mm -hmm. loss or, or, or issues. So, I mean, I've, I just, we just did 95 turkeys for Thanksgiving and I donated, um, um, to, uh, a lot of them are veterans on hospice care. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but I said, if there's anybody on hospice care that's struggling, that could use this help. Um, I'll go to uh, the vet center. I'll go to uh, Miss Carly's. We donated turkeys to Miss Carly's. Mm -hmm. I would feed the homeless, uh, right. or less fortunate. I'll go to the um, uh, the low income housing and find some people that need help there, and I'll help them. It doesn't matter uh, to me who you are. If you need help or if you're going through a struggling time, who's to put somebody else in front of you right. because you think a veteran deserves it more. I can appreciate veterans. I can thank them. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, I think everybody's got their own story that everybody's, yeah. you know, well, you know, one, a couple of things that you said that I think are, are real interesting and it speaks <clears throat> to where I was at because part of my uh, story was that it, when I was going through a dark time in transition from my former life to my what became my current life, right? Um, one of the things that I discovered was men's work. And um, at that time in the, in, in the Rockford area, in the, in the Midwest, uh, men's psychology, the men's movement was just starting. This was in the early 90s. And that helped me beyond words, this idea of understanding what was then later phrased as the male mode of feeling and learning how, learning how to... Um, um, uh, be able to go to another male and being able to have them hold that space because there was no sexual tension. There was no sexual energy there. Yeah. And, and it was also great risk because that was where, um, prior, um, that, you know, men were competition. They were, they were individuals who, if you shared what your dreams were, they would use it against you. If you shared what your fears were, sure. they could exploit that. Um, and then learning how to discern who would be able to be safe. Well, then after going through that part of my journey, it was important for me to then be able to share that, not just with men, but then also with women, because there's this misnomer of, I think that females have is that they're so good with sharing feelings just because people talk a lot. doesn't right. necessarily mean they share a lot of feelings, right? <laughs> Very true. Or, or, or there's this, that just because they're female, there's a, there's a, a, an ability to go into that vulnerable space, right? Sure. Because, um, we can repeat a story, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going into that vulnerable space where growth happens, but growth happens because it's, we're scared shitless. Yeah. I mean, it's a scary, <laughs> it's a scary dark place yeah. and there's risk there of being hurt. You know, I think when you were talking, you know, the impact of, um, growing up and the impact of your parents' divorce, um, you were compartmentalizing things at an early age, yeah. thoughts and feelings. Right. Sure. And then, and then the things that you, um, as different, uh, as different, um, traumatic things happened um, when you were deployed. Um, then you went into a the box just got, or the the room where the box was just got bigger. Yeah. Um, and and I, and part of what I hear that you're saying is that you're giving individuals, maybe specifically men, but individuals in general, permission to talk about what they may not want to talk about. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Because some of your close friends. Um, who passed may not have taken that advantage. Yeah. 
maybe it would have made a difference. I don't know. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I always want to say that, you know, you know, go to a professional, go to a counselor. But I also know that there's a lot of counselors that are just punching the clock and 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 to do the type of work that we're talking about doing. You have to you have to have someone who's willing to walk with you oh, in that. For sure. Darkness, for sure. You know? Yeah. So yeah. so when you, when you think about <clears throat> this idea of um, wanting to help. Right. And um, part of what one of the things that. Um, wanting to be able to share is that you know we can definitely help by giving someone clothes and and giving food and we definitely need to do that for ones that don't have those things and then there's this idea of being able to give to them hope and possibility and direction of how can they change yeah their circumstance right how do they change internally their circumstance sure What, what are your thoughts about about that, about what, what do you, what can you, what do you do to be able to help model that for other individuals? Cause that's clearly what you've done. Yeah. Uh, I recently just, uh, I was down in Miami, uh, two weeks ago, um, speaking to Nova. It's the nurses organization of veteran affairs. And, uh, I'm back to Miami in a month, uh, down at their TBI and PTSD clinic speaking to them. Okay. Um, and, uh, just sharing the story, um, I mean, I'd give you a really brief synopsis today, but uh, I go into detail when I speak. And um, and it, just like you're doing here is you show these different levels to where um, childhood, you know, could be good, could be bad, could be, you know, middle of the road, which mine was probably middle of the road, but, but loved. Um, and then uh, this high, and then which a lot of people, you know, go through in the military, and then that lull when they return and then the hope that there, so I can relate with this, mm-hmm. and there is a way to get better. Mm-hmm. There is, yeah. uh, there's something that I can find that I'm going to say is a coping mechanism, and, and I can, and I can do. When I would hold group over at the vet center, I had uh, beneath the beard. We would all share our weekly struggles, just like uh, Dan Petrie does with Fatherhood Encouragement. Yeah. They always reflect on the week, share their struggles, and then in that group can talk about you know what? I went through that nine times out of 10. Somebody else has gone through something similar, uh, in situation and can offer what they did to cope with that time. Right. So when I share my story, I'm very candid. I'm very open. I'm very emotional because it's something very important to me and very, uh, impactful to me. And when I share that story, anybody can relate because there's something, whether it's divorce, uh, whether it's childhood trauma, um, whether it's military, whether it's coming home and, and abusing alcohol and damaging relationships, at some point, most likely somebody's done one of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they can understand and reflect and then find a, find hope in doing something better with life, yeah. uh, finding purpose. Yeah. And I always tell people, it's like, you just have to have purpose. I don't care what that purpose is as long as it's healthy. I mean, there's yeah, obviously anybody can abuse uh, any aspect of life, sadly, but, uh, my purpose is what helped me. And a lot of people say, well, you know, you shouldn't be talking about these missions or, or what you did. I'm not that world war two. It's we're, we're, we're different now. Uh, where the guys used to go into the VFW and drowned into that dark bar, you know, and that's, that's how it was. And a lot of Vietnam veterans didn't have that outlet as well. Mm-hmm. And now this outlet is becoming clear and these avenues to where you can share and get these things out so that you're not struggling 
and and have these little demons and embers inside. I always call them embers um, of anger mm-hmm. um, to dwell on. There are people that are sharing the exact same thing you're going through. Mm-hmm. And what I like to do is I just dive in in the community. There, there's a, a children's trauma uh, group that I'm with in District 100 or the Belvedere District. Mm-hmm. I think it's 105, 205, uh, 100, 100, 100, yeah. <clears throat> District 100. Yeah. So, uh, and it's a, a group panel, and they and they go over childhood trauma. So if I can maybe help with my, you know, I sure. offer insight or a story, um, and it helps somebody or or I can contribute to the group, then I feel good. Yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the things that you said is by sharing your story, you then also invite people to share their story, right? Yes. And, and you know, main thing is how can we be a good listener? And then and then beyond creating that space for, for someone to share, you know, I think that element of each individual person has to create that purpose for themselves, find, find their own thing. And maybe it's going to, take some exploring, you know, but um, find that purpose. And then you talked about that daily structure, right? You know, of, um, and if that daily structure is, is movement and depending on where that person is and some discipline regarding what that is about what you put in your body and what you don't put in your body and those types of things, but creating that, that lifestyle, um, and then pursuing those things. What is that thing that's going to give me what's what's bigger than myself you know? yeah um i really appreciate ryan everything that you've been sharing if there was one thing as we get ready to wrap up today that you would want to um share with someone now this is going to come out during during the holiday season right yeah. during the christmas season if there was some one thing that you wanted to share with someone um who, whoever may be listening today um what would you want to share with them um just help each other out. Uh, I'm a big uh, believer and it doesn't have to be monetary. Just open a door for someone or load groceries, something simple like that. Just do a kind gesture. I mean, we we live in a, uh, a troubled city, um, that seems to always report the bad stuff, but, sure. um, just appreciate the situation you're in and always realize that somebody probably has it a little bit tougher, yeah. um, and help and help each other out. So, you know, that just reminds me, I, I, I wrote an article just, just, yesterday and i always talk about this idea about being a light in someone's darkness and in there um this last time i talked um about when we choose to open that door for someone not only are we being a light maybe in someone's darkness but it allows us for our light to for our light to be brighter yeah yeah. you know because just like you said it, it it allows us to feel better about doing the next right thing, do the next life giving thing. Sure. Um, and, and it also then helps someone else too. Yeah. It so, feels good. Yeah. I mean, tell me the last time you helped someone you're like, man, I really don't feel good about that. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't. It's, yeah. it's, it's almost like a guilty pleasure. When I go and speak somewhere and I help something, it's almost like I'm, I'm kind of doing it because I get this gra- I get this feeling of, of, of happiness. Yeah. Um, and I don't think anybody's ever helped anybody. I'm like, man, I just, don't feel good about that. Why'd I do that? (laughs) (laughs) Ryan, thank you very much for being here. I would love to have you on again, just to find out what you're doing and and get more into uh, some of your other experiences that you had. So Ryan, appreciate that. Thank thank you you very much. Okay. Thank you. Thank you you very much for being with us today and listening to uh, Ryan Curry. Um, He's involved with a handful of different organizations here in the, in the community. Um, and definitely, um, if you uh, take take to note what he said, that regardless of um, where you're at, um, 
find that purpose within you. Um, reach out and talk with someone about what may be, uh, that you may be struggling within that darkness. Um, reach out and uh, help someone, um, not only for them, but also for yourself. Um, look forward to being with you next week. Thank you very much.